Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognize the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. My guests on this episode are two of Seattle's most revered and respected style influencers, but the impact they have had on the city's cultural landscape far exceeds the realm of fashion. Through their positions as business owners and creative leaders, They consistently strive to foster community and to support and showcase artists, designers, and performers from Seattle and beyond. Our first guest, Devorah Lindner, relocated to Seattle in 2004 after working as a multimedia artist for over eight years and exhibiting her work at such places as the Walker Art Center and the Minneapolis Institute of Art. In Seattle, she channeled her dynamic vision and skill for making into co-founding the clothing label Prairie Underground. Her creative pedigree is evident not only in the focus on elevated design, materials, and construction, which has earned Prairie Underground a loyal cult following, but also in the company's championing of emerging artists through their artist series. She is also actively involved in Seattle's cultural community, co-curating the MoWave Queer Arts and Music Festival, and serving on the board of directors at On the Boards. Our second guest, Adria Garcia, through her signature sense of style, vast aesthetic vocabulary, and extensive knowledge of history and culture, is able to effortlessly move between roles as installation artist, painter, designer, curator, musician, business owner, and mother. In 2013, she was recognized as the Taino Artist of the Year for her woven grass installations. She performs in the band Le Sang Song with Min Yi and her husband Craig Chambers, and she is the sole proprietor of Indian Summer, a vintage clothing store located in the heart of Capitol Hill, Seattle, which, in addition to housing her hand-picked and selectively curated collection of vintage clothing and housewares, is also a hub for Seattle's creative community, with an ever-changing roster of exhibitions, pop-up shops, and music performances. Our conversation was before a sold-out room at 10 Degrees, an artist's first event space in the heart of Capitol Hill. With cocktails from Ula Distillery and platters of steel drum plantains from my favorite restaurant, Marjorie. And now, let's go beyond this point. So, um, you both have started businesses. You're so involved in the communities around you. You've created spaces and programs to, uh, to support and showcase other creatives. I would say that you are master creators of reality. So I want to start off by kind of talking about how you fell into that role. Adria, I'm going to start with you. What made you decide to create the boutique slash performance space slash community creative center that is Indian Summer? Well, I've always been involved in vintage and art. Uh, I grew up in an antique shop. My mother and father were dancers. Um, I was surrounded by community and art and beauty and my house was always open and and people were always there getting dressed up and when I was a little kid I would buy things at garage sales and you know set them out and dress my friends up and it just was that progression of 
sharing art and finding things and combining native heritage into everyday regalia, making life about an expression of uh, celebration and about beauty. And so I found the space um, that I currently reside in, um, open, a friend just suggested, Ian Burnside, and it just kind of went from there. I had like a couple racks and I started bringing things. I was selling out of my house um, up until that point. People would always just come to me. I would do appointments and I opened this space and suddenly I was just interacting with women all day long and my whole vision had always been creating a space for people all genders to feel comfortable all body types you know embracing what i call radical fat glamour um which is just like body you know being comfortable and so i have this space that caters to everyone and now it's catering to art and dance parties and me <laughs> and devora um, how does one go from working in sculpture and video to creating a clothing label? Well, Adrian and I share a similar background and culturally sort of at the time that we grew up and where we grew up, Prairie Underground was the name and the company and the clothing we produce was inspired by a group of young people in my hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska, where my business partner and I were friends in high school. And Prairie Underground, in talking about creating your own reality and what you were speaking of in, in the first question, living in the Midwest and being an outsider or different or having an interest in fashion, politics, art, dance, it sort of makes you feel like an outsider in that, in that culture, in that climate. And, and yet you have the tremendous advantage of sort of having to create your own world and having to gather those people around you that also support you in that vision and help you bring that vision to reality. So what led me to be an artist was, was really that group of people and that sense of freedom and that in knowing that as a young person, I found the people that let me know my ideas had value and that what I wanted to create there would be space for it in the world. You know, once I left a sort of provincial area with not a lot of people of the similar mindset. So I do want to take a moment and like let everyone know about the tremendous people who assist me at Prairie Underground on a daily basis. First and foremost, my business partner, Camilla Eckersley, who's a phenomenal designer and a lifelong friend and a sister to me, as well as Lisa Gray, Lilia Ramirez Flores, Jesse Prebstel, Renee Schliebe, Emily, Chris Bolt, Beth Murphy, Sierra Stinson, and Zara. Um, I just want to really give a shout out to everyone because we are a very small company and they allow me to also be here to explain what we do, but this is a part of a creative collective of who we are. I won an artist grant in 2003 that allowed me for the first time in my life to be fully employed as an artist. And it was a moment of, it was a feeling of, you know, tremendous achievement and at the same time one of a great deal of isolation. Prior to that, I, I mean, I had a day job as most artists do at any time or every time in their life. And I worked in home health care 
taking care of men with developmental disabilities and mental illness. And that allowed me to work 40 hours on a weekend and have health insurance and devote the rest of the week to sculpture. And when I won a grant and found myself not having that interface on the weekend, not having a sense of direct action, my life began to feel incredibly empty and, and riddled with anxiety about what happened next. And I wanted to try to conceive of another way of working as a creative person that would allow me to create that world that was sustainable and not only reliant upon a system of patronage or grants or institutional work. So you, you both are, you have art practices, you have businesses. How do the two inform each other? A lot of times people see these, these two worlds as being in opposition. How do you, how do you create balance? Adria? Um, it's all one thing for me. Uh, art, the clothing I see as art, um, I find pieces, I, I have attachment, I have visions, I create a person in my head and I'm dressing them. And it's kind of um, the same with my artwork. I do, I braid large fields of grass with my partner, Sarah Cabbage. And um, we started this practice and it, it led me into this world of really uh, exploring my own heritage because it's an ancient practice that Taino Indian did was braid grass to infuse it with energy and thought and meditation and ritual. And so when I create spaces, the braided grass, everything I do, I feel like I do it for community's sake. So I braid these huge fields and then invite artists into the spaces to then create something of their own inspired by that. And I feel like the clothes and that business is the same. I, I sell basically regalia for uh, you know people to put something on, feel like their ultimate self, and then be able to create and express. You know, everyone knows when you have like an outfit that you feel banging in, you're just gonna like really deliver. And so, and be yourself and not think about your clothes. And that's, that's native style. Native regalia is all about art. And I take that influence in the same way. And balancing it is, I can't even do one without the other. Um, my art is just, it's, it's everywhere. It's who I am and what I do. And the balance is so easy for me because I'm, it's like I fulfill every side of myself. Devorah, on the Prairie Underground website, it states, and I'm quoting, Prairie Underground is a company that has been formed and guided by a sustained engagement with art. Could you explain what this means? Why is engagement with art important for a company that makes clothing? Creation has been a central theme in my life as well as Camilla's life. We've always made things by hand and some of those things have been labeled as art, others have been labeled as craft or design but that has been a common string that, um, that flows through our lives. And with that, we've always viewed art as well. And we've seen the importance that can be gleaned and the, the practicality in going and looking at art and how that can change your experience of everyday life and how that can also inform the work that you do. I think there is a real importance in giving back with that inspiration. I mean, the inspiration that you glean, I think it's also important to create new things in the world and also be participants in that. 
And so it's important for us to know that we, we are a company with that level of, of engagement, that artists are our friends, they're our spouses, they're people that we spend time with and we support them in any number of ways. Not every business has a connection to art and it's something that we're quite proud of and that we feel is embedded in our practice. And frankly, we operate in, in lots of ways more like artists than designers. I mean, there are schedules of, you know, in, in being a fashion designer that are relentless, but Camilla and I make a lot of choices that are deeply personal in our design practice and that are based on almost, you know, information that's gleaned from the biosphere of those people that we have known in our lives and the people that we surround ourselves with on a daily basis. And that's very idiosyncratic and unusual as a design process for a larger company. Do either of you, this question is for both of you, do you think that art fuels business? In an increasingly connected society, it feels very imperative to place a premium on creation and to also create a space for new ideas to proliferate and exist in the world. And I think that too long businesses have pirated the, the value and quality of art and have done too little to support new creation and support new ideas. And a lot of design now is directly related to, to business and making money with devices or connections to, to other people, but too few, you know, inspire us to connect to our spirit in a different way. And there isn't enough space in a media-saturated environment that is left to simply contemplate art. And those are things that our artist series is directed to and wants to intervene in, to behave differently as a business that isn't only taking, because of course, creative dialogue is a dialogue that's built on what has come before and what will flow after. And a reprocessing of ideas is still a creative act. It's the way that artists learn. It's the way that designers learn how to replicate, how to do something that's similar and change it. It's a progression of a vernacular that I think is really important. But what I think is also really important is to create space for, for creation for its own sake as well and that businesses have a vested interest in supporting that and bringing that into their operation, bringing that into their doors and changing a level of dialogue with people that, that come to our space. Right now, if you come to Prairie Underground, we have a, a central landing space or a room where people sort of walk in our front door in Georgetown. And it could be a showroom space, it could be a retail space, but right now it's an art gallery and people get to see Megumi's work. And in our busy days, greeting people and trying to have meetings quickly and trying to navigate people through the space, I find it very restful to invite people in and spend some time in a gallery and look at artwork made from an artist who lives in Seattle, who maintains an artistic practice outside of our business that has nothing really to do with what we do other than we invited her into our space to 
observe, look at our clothing, look at our textiles, and think about ways that she could use those as artist materials in a project that she could then mount an exhibition, hold a quasi-residency in our space. She spent a week in our space installing the piece, finishing the piece, having an artist occupy areas in your business changes the feeling of what happens in those areas and it changes the way people interact with each other in a space that is routed for particular productivity. And it also provided her with a modest stipend to complete the work and, and live and have the time to, to make that happen. Do you, do you see the support of art and culture as a responsibility or an investment? Well, I suppose both. I see it as a responsibility. I've seen it as a responsibility all of my life, even when I was an artist. I see it as an investment, as a business in that we also intend to use the art that our artist series produces potentially for advertising. Camille and I are sort of no logo generations. We're very reluctant to put a name and an identity and to use strategic marketing ploys to entice people to be interested in Prairie Underground. I think we would rather position something more oblique and have them come around to our collection in a different way, to discover us in a different way. I also think, frankly, our customer is too media savvy and has cultural literacy to know that there may be an image of a female posed in a certain way with a particular look, photographed in a magazine wearing our garments. I feel that as a company, a small company, a company with really non-traditional ideas and non-traditional ways of approaching business, that we can do something differently. And yet I do also want to be able to capture new audiences in unexpected ways and in other places in the world. Using art for, for advertising in that way, I feel is an investment, but I also feel it's honestly promoting the work of the artists that we do not claim ownership of. It is shared. Adria? Um, well, for me, I mean, I'm, s I'm really just like a one-man show. Like my stores, I have an assistant. And, and it's quite a show. Yeah, it's mm. quite a show. Not gonna lie. Um, but I kind of, I mean, I don't know if that's because I'm controlling or because I'm so like uh, into, you know, I, it's like when I want to see something, it's like I really just want to see it. And that's a lot of my work, you know, it's like if you're a painter, it's like no one else is coming in and helping me with that. But um, I like the creative energy. So I open up my back. Uh, I have a space in the back and I open that up for young artists uh, who, or young curators, and I just kind of let them go. I, I basically say, do whatever you want. It's like, I know the person, I see the person, I, I, you know, I enjoy their beauty, um, and I'm curious about them. And when I see, you know, I, if I get a grant, and then I use that grant to pay for the space, have the artist live there, create something for a week, uh, a show, I feel like their energy is fueling my energy. And it's almost just like, um, you know, it's an exchange. It's this exchange of 
magic really of like you give me art i give you art i give you space you take the space you use the space and i like that kind of it's the maternal part of me where it's i just want to take care and open up but also you know i do benefit because it draws those artists draw people to my space you know it's like if i if if their end product is the show and people come and see the show you know, they'd see my store, they buy something from my store, we dress them, they create a relationship. And so, you know, I feel like it's a nurturing on both sides. That's important. And I think it's important to champion young artists and to champion raw artists who, you know, maybe don't have money and don't know how to get grants and don't know how to do all that and provide them with a space to, you know, put on a, their resume saying, yeah, I curated a show that was one week long. And for the podcast, I'd love to create a visual image for people who've never been to Indian Summer, because Indian Summer has a real fireplace in it. Yeah. <laughs> there is a full kitchen in the back. Yeah. There is a loft space, and it is a hub of creativity. Yeah. The people that, the first time I went to Indian summer, well, second time really, <laughs> but um, the first time that I bought something at Indian summer, a gorgeous pair of green leather gloves that fit like a glove, I'm still trying to break that glove. But um, I met two people that I'm now collaborating with yeah. that were doing work that I had been a little familiar with, but then saw in person and marveled at the beauty of the execution marveled at like the spirit of sharing and collaboration that is fostered and seems embedded in that space. It's truly a reflection of you, Adria. I mean, you are the, the beaming sun that people come to see when they walk into Indian summer. And it's, I can't more highly recommend it. Well, you are, you're both leaders in, in your businesses and in your communities. Um, it's because of your creative vision and all the responsibility that you're willing to take on, um, being active and involved in so many things. But I feel like kind of authority is something that you both that kind of emanates from both of you um, in a very natural way. Uh, why is being a leader something that is important to you, Devora? I feel that I was lucky to have role models of leaders when I was growing up that. My father taught me to be really bold and to, that's one thing that he patterned so exquisitely in my development. He also taught me how to make a friend with most of the people that I met. And it's helped me to truly, I do truly love people and I get very drawn into people's stories. I think being a leader is a part of self-preservation within that, in that I then need to try to channel those relationships in some way that still um, works for everyone. I become friends with people by collaborating on work projects with them. It's a part of my nature. I do like to, um, to collaborate and I do like to have constructive use of time. I'm a bit busy in that way and, and yet I, I don't see myself as a leader as much as um, I'm a fun person to be around who's bossy. <laughs> <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite combinations. Maybe I'm not even that fun to be around. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> uh, 
Adria? Uh, well, very similarly, I, um, I grew up really supported. Um, I grew up supported by my parents and supported uh, a lot by my father in respect to body image, which, um, you know, is hard, I think, growing up in this country or maybe every country where it's, you see one image, especially, um, you know, I'm Native American, so I wasn't seeing Native models and I wasn't seeing, I'm Amazonian, I wasn't seeing Amazon models on the pages six foot tall women, 250 pounds. And I was always looking, you know, and for my face. And I think I got low. And then my father really kind of instilled things in me. He always would say when we were little, we're so small, we're nothing, we're so small, we're everything. And it was kind of this freeing moment where I realized maybe everyone else was in their head and maybe no one was really looking at each other and that I didn't really have those eyes that I thought were watching me. And so I freed myself. I just kind of started doing whatever I wanted. And I started, you know, wearing whatever I wanted and looking how I wanted. And, you know, yeah, a bra can be a top or, a, you know, a high-waisted underwear that could be a short and I might go out in the summer in it and feel great. And I started noticing people kind of gravitating towards that personal freedom and coming to me and sharing with me and being open and, wanting to be part of that. And I guess it's just the natural progression of people seeing someone who really loves themselves, like mm -hmm. give it up. You know, it's like, I really, I love myself. I, I was asked a question if you were reincarnated and you can come back as anyone, who would it be? And I, I would come back as myself. <laughs> like I would, come, I would do this again. Good answer. Uh, I, I actually want to talk about a, another response to a question. Um, in a recent interview in Seattle Met Magazine, uh, you were asked to describe your personal style and you described it as powerful and bizarre. <laughs> Could you explain what you meant by this? Well, um, it's kind of like the touching in the, it's, it's a mix of who I am. You know, like I've touched on a little, I'm, I'm Viking blood, I'm Amazon blood, I'm Congolese, it's, uh, and I was raised tribally, Native American. So it's like, I was just surrounded by everything. And that creates this bizarre patterning of, you know, sometimes I have the full Viking hair, but I'm wearing a full buckskin dress and, you know, platforms. So it's like, who is this six foot four woman coming at us? And I think that's the bizarre part of it. And it's also the powerful part of it is invoking all the magic that has coursed through my ancestors' blood, all the magic that courses through every man and woman that I've loved and, and have been around, I kind of glean from them. I take a little bit, you know, it's like I might hang out with Devorah and then I'll be wearing a chignon or I'll want a powerful blazer. I'll hang out with you. I might wear a tie tomorrow. You know, it's like, it's that kind of, it, it's that. That's my bizarre and powerful style influence, I guess. Devorah. In this age of economic disparity, global warming, and natural, and natural disasters, why is style important? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Gabe. <laughs> because I was recently interviewed for a different publication where I talked about style and Seattle's lack of style, and I need to eat crow a little bit because I do think, to Adria's point, Style is 
It's important to enjoy life. It's important to feel the sensuality that that clothing can also offer not only a sense of protection or shelter from the world, it can also convey an identity. It can convey an, an allegiance with subculturally. It can, it can provide a lot of provocative signals to everyone in the world that lends a terrific air of costuming and mystery. And I think that is why style is important. However, it's not required or even ultimately the most interesting achievement a person can strive to do. And that's what I really wanted to say during the other interview. I don't, I think that there is a tremendous overemphasis on style. And I also feel that the tutorials that we have now about style are just heartbreaking to me. I love people who make the most stylish mistakes. I, Erica Badu has always been a style icon for me, and there have been very few people who look more strange and unique at different times, and, and yet who truly embody something completely powerful that everybody instantly identifies and is so comfortable in, in their skin and knows how to take four or five different garments and put them together in this way that is true alchemy. And I think enjoyment should be primarily what people achieve through attaining a sense of style. Self-love. I mean, if that's not the point of it, then, then don't bother. Adria, who are your style icons? Oh, um. Locally, Lady Krishna, mm -hmm. Stephen Dolan, Devorah, my friends and family. I just love, I just see people, we were talking earlier, and I feel like style also is this thing of, it's so many, style and fashion are completely different. Um, you know, the Amish have a style, they wear the same thing all the time, but that's a style. And I think, for me, I view people as wildflowers. And I was saying, I went into the pony the other night and it was like walking into a field of wildflowers. And it was just like, the, everyone the ponies was- ponies of Barnes, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Down the street. Um, but everyone was like really just putting it on and expressing and you know, it's like, for me that, it's like when people take style to be pure self and also almost political, then, my antenna goes up and I get really excited by that. How, how is fashion different? I feel like fashion is kind of, fashion is the industry. Fashion is the pumping out of, you know, it's the 10 rack, you know, the 10 racks of khakis or the 10 rack of, but I think style is how you view it and put that together. Style is, I have a friend who wears a sack dress, like this linen hand woven piece and a head wrap every single day it's almost like i've never even seen her out of anything else it always looks different it's always beautiful and refreshing but it's kind of like she found her uniform and that was it and and that's style you know it's like native americans we have two dresses and it's like rocket and it's that style it's just the way you you see fashion that's style do you have a specific style philosophy that you adhere to 
fuck it. Um, that's it. Like, I just, it's kind of like, there are no rules. There really are no rules. Like I said to you last night, I don't know if I want to come as, you know, Annie Hall or Rosie Perez. And you said, come as Annie Perez. And, uh, you know, it's like that. It's just kind of like wherever the mood may take me as kind of my philosophy. It's just, I mean, I have days where I'm totally embracing androgyny and, you know, all different facets of power. Uh, and it's fun. No rules. Devorah, as someone at the helm of a fashion label, what is your style philosophy? I'm from the Diana Vreeland School of Design Philosophy. I love grooming. I, that's always the anchor. I also fall into the Diane Brill School of taking six hours to take a bath. Like that's to me is that level of enjoyment that that is one long bath yeah. it makes it so much easier to get dressed yeah. when you take a lot of time to groom and make sure that um, the foundation is set and everything is right and then um, then you can add things to it and that can be I mean it can be anything but I I like to surprise people too and sometimes surprising people is also wearing no makeup and showing up in jeans and a sweatshirt and being able to cuddle with the dog on the sofa. Like that's also very stylish in my mind. You had mentioned um, subculture before as being a reference point. And you were both associated and connected to alternative subcultures, art, music, queer culture. Um, how does your experience in these communities inform what you do? Adria? I mean, I think the subculture, for my subculture, a lot of it is based in politics. Um, heavily grounded in the politics of gender. Um, what does that mean? The politics of body, you know, what's perfect. Um, it's defined my life and my creative inquiry since I started creating. There is that sense of like finding it as a child, yeah. this, these items the that first seem scary yeah. and then suddenly are the one thing that you're drawn to the most and identify with the most. I would say for Prairie Underground, it's definitely been the basis of our mission to be as sustainable in manufacturing as we can be. Very early on when Camilla and I were writing our business plan, there was a sense of, from my perspective, coming from an artist and then going into business, there was a real avaristic opportunity there. Like Now we can suddenly throw all morals out the window. And this is the great thing about going into business with your girlfriend who keeps you centered and grounded and said that she didn't really want to have a business that wasn't rooted in the same ethics and morals that represented our lives. And that was really powerful. And it just like, it flowed from there. It's like, of course, why would we play by other people's rules when we're doing this? Like the whole point of doing it on our own is to do it in a way that we feel great about. So using organic cotton, working in hemp, whether you're the ridicule of 
an industry, these textiles are serviceable, they last a long time, and they take dye really well. They can be stained, they can be worn in the ocean, they can be washed. They're honest materials for beautiful clothing, and I think that that integrity of and, and intention in, in the foundation of what we do and what our products look like are I do think that our ethics come through. I think people see that in there, and and I think that they have a faith. And that's the wonderful thing about allowing people into your space and about having, a, you know, the opportunity where people can actually, you know, meet the people who make the clothes that you make and view your process. It, there's so much healthy distrust of business today. I think most people assume that businesses have negative ulterior motives. Why, and why do you think that is? Because most of them, I think... Do? Do, yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the Pacific Northwest is that people have a real passion for seeking out the individual and seeking out the small business and trying to fit that into their life. Even when you're starting out and it may not work, they're going to want to give you an opportunity. We still sell in the same store on Ballard Avenue that we've sold our first collection in. That store has changed owners. It's now Horseshoe, before that it was Olivine. They have bought every Prairie Underground collection that we have designed and produced. And that is phenomenal to me. Not only that that's happened for every season, for every year in our 10-year history. We're working on our 46th collection. And that level of support is, I, I think you would, you would be really challenged to find that in another city. You maybe would find it in Portland. We have stores that are similar to that in Portland, but not every store has made it. And that, that holdout is really dynamic in what makes Seattle such a magical rainforest to me and makes us feel so grateful and provides us with the most potent muses to think of when we design our clothing. Adria, so much of um, the aesthetic of Indian summer is rooted in the kind of culture of artists and musicians. As you become more visible and more successful, do you ever feel any pressure? Um, uh, just kind of ultimately having to appeal to a larger audience, do you feel any pressure to have to sacrifice your principles or change anything or dilute what you do? No, I actually feel like welcomed by it. I feel welcomed by the, I mean, every year it's bigger. Every year it's a little bit more, every year more artists are coming in and more musicians and I just, I feel like that's a welcoming and it's what I wanted. It's really, um, you know, I'm like living the thing I always dreamed about was someday I'll have this little boutique and it'll thrive and I'll be an artist and a musician. And it's like, that is what my life is. And people recognizing that is what keeps it going. And, um, you know, I'll, I'm sure DeVore is the same. I'll work as hard as necessary. Uh, my work is my whole life and I love it. And um, I don't really feel like it's work per se. And so if there's more demand, it's just me really getting to do more of what I want to do. And that's a good thing. So I like it. Pressure. 
Well, um, coming full circle back to the concept of creating reality, I mean, you both are running your businesses out of the city and you're so involved in the community and um, you're doing so much. What is the vision of Seattle that you're, that you're striving for, that, you're, that all of your effort is going into? Adria? I mean, I would love to see, like so much of what we were talking about, I would love to see young artists and artists embraced here. I would love to see, um, I have a friend who lives in Paris and she lives for free because she's an artist and because Paris wants to be known for art. And I think that there are ideas, there's so much money in this town that I do think it's the ability to um, secure and be known for arts, be known for music. I feel like it could really happen here. Like you were saying, the El Capitan, and like the, there are these spaces that do dedicate, and I would love to see people build spaces for, you know, low income housing for, for the artists to create and for um, beauty. And I mean, when a city starts losing its art, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing what happens uh, a little bit on the scale, but like you were saying, it's growing with the architecture and things like that. I would love to see beauty embraced and um, thought, more thought put into businesses, business models, what's being created, sustainability, making things be about a piece and be smaller and be something, create more special, like a more of a special vibe rather than happiness is mass consumption. Um, happiness is just roving and moving really fast and grabbing as much. I think to take pause and to celebrate what this city is kind of known for, it's, it is known for mu music and beauty and- And culture. And culture mm -hmm. and art and, politics and being uh, politically open and moving and, you know, like being embraced, you know, we've both been embraced and here and maybe we're outcasts and outsiders in some eyes, but really um, I feel like there is a sense of like community here that I haven't ever experienced and I would love to see that continue. Tafora. Seattle has a culture of righteous busybodies that I, I'll, I'll just respond by telling a story. When I first arrived in Seattle and I was driving um, along with my mom with my Minnesota license plates and at the time I still smoked and I was smoking a cigarette and we were driving I think along like First Avenue or something and I threw my cigarette out the window and didn't connect anything about that action at the time, somebody started honking, like crazy honking behind me, like incessant. I thought my car was on fire. Like I literally panicked, like pulled over, and he pulled up and rolled down his window and said, we don't do that here. And I'll never, <laughs> never forget it. Stop and <laughs> I just, it was a really brilliant introduction to Seattle. <laughs> and I, I encourage that behavior. I think that was a really good lesson. And we that's have, all we I'm going to say. We have standards. We yeah. have standards here. Tell people what Perfect. we do here and what we don't do here. Yeah. Great. And, and get some support. But yeah, do some research yeah. before you tell them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect note to um, end on. Um, Adria Devora, thank you so much for being part of Beyond thank This you. Point. Yeah.
Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Flood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.